Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to the More Than Child's Play podcast. This is your host, Nicole Surgent. I am flying solo today. My co-host, Lacey Marisi, is on vacation. It is actually her birthday today. So we're going to give a shout out to her and hope she is having a nice day. Um, We are so excited to get back to podcasting after a little break this season. Everything seems to have been on a break and we did have a bit of a hiatus with the coronavirus as most things um, have been on pause. Um, in that vein, we are thrilled. I am thrilled. And I know Lacey is too, even though she's not here, um, to welcome a, a dear friend and esteemed professional, Dr. Lisa Costello. I'm going to take a minute just to tell you a little bit about Lisa. Um, her bio and her accomplishments are long and wide, but I'm going to hit some highlights for our audience today. Lisa is a lifelong West Virginian. Um, she is actually from my hometown, Weirton, West Virginia. She is, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is also um, our shared um, alma mater with Lacey and I. She's a pediatric hospitalist at West WVU Medicine Children's Hospital and the co-director of the pediatrics clerkship. She leads a healthcare literacy and patient advocacy curriculum thread for the medical department at a program, I'm sorry, and is the advisor for the medical student group, student advocates impacting decisions on healthcare. While at WVU, I I thought I love the university. Lacey loved the university. There's probably not a bigger supporter of our state and especially our university than Lisa. She is a huge fan and advocate um, for our region. She played on the women's basketball team. She won WVU's prestigious Miss Mountaineer Award. She was a distinguished Mountaineer named that by then-Governor Joe Manchin. She has won all sorts of awards, including being selected into the Gold Humanism Honor Society and the School of Medicine's Alumni Association's President's Young Alumnus Award. Lisa is very active um, in the university and the pediatric department. Um, Her background also includes public health. She does a lot with the medical school. She currently serves as the president of West Virginia University's chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's the treasurer of the West Virginia State Medical Association, the vice chair of WESPAC and board of directors for the WVU Children's Health Insurance, I'm sorry, not WVU, but West Virginia's Children's Health Insurance Program. She has quite a presence nationally as well and is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on State and Government Affairs. She is on the Executive Council for WVU School of Medicine Alumni Association and has won several past awards. Lisa very actively um, engages academically with advocacy, healthcare policy, social media, and improving communication with patients and healthcare professionals, um, as well as 
engaging with the public by utilizing technology and media to amplify advocacy and education. She's very active on social media um, on behalf of children and their health. And so we will give you contact information for that as well. Um, Interestingly, and in important to our conversation. Most recently, she has um, served and supported the Bureau of Public Health during this pandemic response for our state. Um, Personally, Lisa is is a friend of our family. She is younger than your host today. And um, when we were growing up, she was a neighbor of my grandparents. And even at a young age, um, would come and sit on the porch with my grandmother while my grandfather was going through a very terrible illness. And from a young age, it was very clear that Lisa had a heart for patients and for caregivers. And that has certainly um, been true throughout her life. So Lisa, that was a big intro, but welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. That is quite the introduction, and I appreciate that. And I could spend just as much time, even longer, um, giving accolades to you and Lacey. And I'm just really excited to be here with you to chat about uh, COVID and whatever else we want to get into. But I just really respect all the work that you and Lacey um, Therapists are some of my favorite people on this planet, whether it's physical therapists, speech, occupational, respiratory. Um, I know that they have had a profound impact on my career and my personal life. Um, I tell my physical therapist all the time that she's the best and that I I literally wouldn't walk without her. So I just appreciate all the work that uh, you and Lacey do on behalf of of children and our community. So I'll, I'll share in giving a happy birthday shout out to to Lacey, but just super thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So uh, just a few housekeeping things before we get started. Um, We are going to talk about coronavirus specifically today, including a lot of questions that our listeners um, contributed to this conversation. This is a podcast on infection and public health and children and their general wellness and well-being. Um, This is not a political conversation. We're not going to um, dive into that because we're healthcare professionals and we're here to talk about health. I told Lisa I don't even think this needs to be mentioned because our audience has historically been so warm and welcoming and encouraging. But it is 2020, and I'm just going to say that I will protect our space from any negative comments um, on any platform that we share this on social media. I really respect Lisa's opinion and her time, and I'm thankful for her being here. Um, so I also wanted to thank our listeners. We had some great questions come in through social media, and I'm super excited to share them. So we're going to go ahead and, and just get started, and we're going to start with a general question. I want to ask you, Dr. Lisa, because we know this is a novel virus, and I want you to talk to a minute for us about what that means. Information seems to change quickly, um, and I'm wondering what you could share with us about why. As a physician who has worked in public health, can you explain to us why it seems like sometimes the message changes frequently? And from your end and your work in public health, how does the science around a pandemic like this work? What do we actually know about this virus as of today? And what do we know about how it affects children? It's a great way to start off talking about 
coronavirus, um, and I'll probably use it interchangeably, but we're talking about a virus here. The virus name is SARS-CoV-2, and it's frequently referred to as COVID-19. That's actually the disease caused by the virus. But when we're talking about uh, this novel virus, that means it's new. From what we can tell, it was first identified in, in late 2019 in China, and we know that there are coronaviruses that have exist. There are many different human coronaviruses. There are also many hundreds, actually, of coronaviruses that impact animals. And there are times that that can what we call spill over into and cause disease in humans. And that's what we're seeing with this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. So it's a new virus, meaning we're learning a lot about it. We're learning about how it spreads, how long it takes a person to develop symptoms, how long they may be considered infectious or that they could share or spread the virus. We're also learning a lot about the symptoms an individual may exhibit and also what impacts it has on the body. We have seen individuals get very, to get actually no symptoms or have very mild or moderate symptoms to people be very severely uh, impacted by this disease. And we have unfortunately seen um, hundreds of thousands of deaths at this point um, from this, this virus. So when we're talking about studying it, we're learning more about it every day. So, you know, we, at the beginning of this, and what we know in other pandemics, we, we try to institute measures that we know can help prevent spread of a virus or common infection control strategies. But I think we need to give respect to this virus and that it is new and it is uh, unique. And we will always, I think in human nature, try to compare it to other items um, or other viruses. But by and large, you know, this should be treated as its its own virus and we're learning more about it. And so I think that can sometimes be frustrating to the public. It, it's also frustrating to healthcare professionals because we want to know everything. We want to know answers yesterday. But when we're dealing with something new, it takes us time to, to study how it's impacting others, particularly when we're talking about these long-term effects on individuals. We'll have to see, you know, we're, we've only been identifying this virus since the end of 2019. So we're learning more and more about it and learning more about treatments that can be effective in managing it, uh, learning more about how it spreads and, and ways that we can hopefully reduce that spread. And so it, it can be frustrating to hear these different changes and recommendations, but that's a good thing. That means that we're studying it. We're looking at uh, different aspects of the virus, whether it's spread or impact on individuals of different ages and what treatments might be beneficial. And we want to improve our treatment. In, in medicine and healthcare, we always talk about quality improvement. That's the work that we need to do. So even if we feel like we have something under good control, we need to be looking at ways that we can always consistently improve. And that's certainly the case here in a pandemic. So as time goes on, we'll be able to study uh, more when we look back on, on impacts, but then also moving forward. And in, in science, we talk about, in our medicine, we talk about a randomized controlled trial, notably a, a blinded randomized controlled trial 
being the gold standard of when we're studying um, or recommending treatments. And, and those take time. You have to recruit participants when you're, whether you're talking about a medicine or a drug, you know, you have to go over the risks of being in that study and then perform the study and collect data over a period of time and then analyze that data um, and, and then review that data and, and do a peer review process so that we can be working with evidence that is uh, accurate and been reviewed and, and looked at in multiple different lenses so that we can draw conclusions from that. And I think, you know, in, in healthcare, we take uh, in medicine an, an oath to first do no harm, and we're, we're certainly wanting to abide by that as well. And so we have to look at all these different studies and interpret them and what they mean. And it is certainly rapidly changing as we're learning more and more and more about this, this virus. So what we're going to talk about today is based upon what we currently know best um, things can change. And from the beginning of this, when we've really been addressing it in the United States, you know, or in West Virginia since around March, you know, there certainly have been items that have changed. But I think that that can, and that should be viewed as a positive thing because we're learning and we're growing um, and, and trying to provide the best care and recommendations available with what we know best, uh, learning from what we've seen happen, and then also uh, looking at how we're going to move forward. That's wonderful. Good information to have. I'm just curious too, can you talk a minute about children? What do we know right now about how this virus affects children and how that may or may not be different than how it affects adults? I always like to say as a pediatrician, you know, children are not little adults. Um, I'm actually trained in internal medicine as well as pediatrics and so I, I've had the opportunity to care for adults in, in my past work. I now solely uh, care for, for children, obviously, in my public health work. I'm helping to make policy or input and recommendations for people of all ages. But what we can know now about children is that, by and large, they tend to have uh, milder symptoms if they contract uh, COVID. So certainly children can get COVID-19 we have seen in other countries as well as our own that they still seem to get it less than comparatively to older individuals. And if they do get the virus, it tends to be less uh, severe, meaning they have mild or moderate symptoms. Common symptoms include fever, cough, runny nose, but also we've seen a lot of GI type symptoms. So nausea, diarrhea, upset stomach. Um, and then interestingly, a lot of individuals have reported kind of a loss of taste or smell, which um, it may be associated with kind of the nasal congestion. So we have seen kind of a, a broad array of symptoms that can impact individuals. And by and large, children seem to get the disease in, in milder forms that could be really subtle. But we are seeing individuals... Um, children get more severe disease and end up in the hospital. Um, we've seen that at, at our hospital in Morgantown, and we've seen that in, in hospitals across the, the state that children do and times need to be admitted um, to get care inside the hospital from COVID. And then also we've seen um, children unfortunately die from COVID. We still, you know, in the United States have seen less than a, a hundred deaths from the most recent data that I've seen. 
um, when it comes to children, but certainly, you know, for, for those families and for anyone that's lost someone um, or, or had someone impacted by COVID, that's obviously a very traumatic and um, challenging and, and difficult thing. And so uh, we know that children can get it. Um, fortunately, we still think that they tend to get it more mild, but we are seeing uh, children get it severe enough that they end up in the hospital. Um, and as we've done more testing, um, just of recent time, we've seen a, a big uptick in more children um, testing positive. Now, there's many things that could contribute to that. Maybe they've been out and about in the community. Um, there's more access to testing, so they're getting tested more. Um, they've been identified as a contact um, of a case, so they're getting tested in that regard. So we have seen an uptick in, in children um, testing positive. And then, you know, we, we've talked about the severe complications that some could have. One of them is called this MISC or multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, and it's really this inflammatory response that we see that impacts multiple parts of our body, our heart, our lungs, our kidneys, um, can have skin as well as GI. Um, it, it's a big inflammatory response. Um, we can see that in other, you know, some people compare it to this disease called Kawasaki disease. So we can see that be triggered from any virus, really. But there has been this association with this MISC um, in children. Um, and that can be, a, that is a more severe um, manifestation or consequence of the SARS-CoV-2 and usually requires hospitalization and Fortunately, if, if, if it's recognized and treated, um, we've seen children do uh, well or be able to recover from that, but it certainly is a, a serious illness. And so we're learning more and we continue to look at children, you know, how often they test positive, how often they spread the disease, and then how often they're ending up in the hospital and, and what happens when they're, they're in the hospital, how severe their illness is. That's great information and really important. Um, my next series of questions for you that came from our listeners center a lot around activities and interactions. And I know as a parent myself, um, I kind of, I've read, I've read different authors who sort of joke about we are the generation of parents who want the handbook. You know, how do we do this right? We, we are overachieving parents parents. One of my favorite authors says that her parents say your generation made parenting a verb and we didn't, we didn't, we didn't parent you. We were just your parents. And I understand that because I, I have felt that pressure as a parent. It was part of the reason why we started our business to remind people um, to, to put, let children be children. But in the same respect, I do think we have a generation of parents who just want to do it right. They desperately want to keep their children safe and safe in many fronts, not just physically, but mentally. And it is, as you know, a very hard situation where there doesn't ever feel like there's a right answer. There's maybe just an answer or a choice that's a little better than the opposite. So I was not surprised to see that when we asked for questions from our listeners, a lot of them centered around activities. And so I'm going to ask you a few um, of our listeners' questions. 
starting with the first who um, was from a parent whose child is a micro preemie. So um, that this might become two questions because I are a lot of our audience parent children with special health care needs. And so their concerns are even more heightened. And But in general, I've heard this question a lot. When will my child be safe to go into a small size Sunday school classroom? Um, and so I think this is a great question for children who don't have remarkable health histories, but also are higher risk kids. What are your thoughts on that? This is a great discussion to, to be having. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, you know, as a whole, and I'll probably sound a little bit like a broken record. Although, do they even say that anymore since, like, there's not really records, I guess? Do I sound I, like I'm I stuck I still on, say it. I don't know if, if yeah. anybody else does. Maybe I'm just stuck on my Spotify song. I don't know. That's going to be the new vernacular. But, um, you know, I'll probably repeat this a lot. Whenever we're talking about um, really any of the recommendations that we're, we're setting forth, we're, we're really talking about how do we mitigate risk? There's, it's really hard to completely eliminate any risk, but I think that's with anything in, in life. I'm not a parent yet, you know, um, God willing, maybe one day I will be, but, um, you know, I, I'm a godparent and I have obviously a lot of children and teens that in my personal life are really important to me as well as all the children and teens and families that I have the true privilege to get to care for as a pediatrician. And so, you know, these are tough decisions. I, I can empathize with that. Uh, you know, it's, it's really hard and to, to, like you said, be a parent and, and make these decisions. And really, it's, it's anything in life. Everything we do in life has risks. And when it comes to this pandemic, certainly that's been even further highlighted where we can get this sense of every decision I'm going to make um, you know, has consequence. And so I think when we're talking about this, we're going to talk a lot about how do, you know, we're going to try to mitigate the risk, but it's, it's hard to completely eliminate the risk and you could still do everything right. And, and your child or your loved one could still potentially um, contract the virus. And I don't say that to be scary. I just say that, you know, I think we have to be a little bit kind to ourselves when we're making these decisions and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm taking everything into consideration. I'm going to make the best decision for, for, for my family. And so when it gets to your specific question about the micro preening, um, you know, we do and have seen certain medical conditions put people at increased risk of severe illness. So we talked a little bit ago about, you know, what are the symptoms and you know, who gets it really severely ill. And it's hard to absolutely predict, but what we know is that there are some people that have certain conditions that do place them at an increased risk of getting that severe illness, which would potentially land them in the hospital. So cancer, kidney disease, lung disease, if you have a weakened immune system, say you've had like an organ transplanted, we also have seen individuals who have obesity or um, are have a, a BMI of 30 or higher, a body mass index of 30 or higher, uh, diabetes, individuals who have serious heart conditions. Um, and then also we've seen um, severe illness in individuals who have sickle cell disease. And so those are ones that we see, you know, that have had an increased risk. There's other diseases and we're learning more and more just recently 
there was a study, um, particularly in teenagers, since we're talking about kids and teens, um, that if those who vape, um, which is terrible, don't don't vape, please, anyone of any age, but particularly uh, children and teens, there might be an increased risk of, of getting uh, COVID from those individuals who, who also vape, and they could potentially um, have um, more serious disease from, you know, making that association. So if- As the parent of teenagers, thank you for the shout out for not vaping. <laughs> I think anytime we can mention that in any context, it's a good thing. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll definitely be talking about, you know, as a pediatrician, I'll be talking about don't vape and, and vaccinate your kids. Those will be my two <laughs> things that I'll certainly be able to, to weave in. But I think it, it depends. It's hard in a situation like this. I don't want to get this is you know, this is certainly a complex area. And I always encourage individuals to talk with their their healthcare professional. But, you know, if you know, just being a micro preemie alone, you know, if they're doing fine now, their risk might be just like anybody else in regards to if they would potentially get severe illness. Obviously, if they have heart disease or um, lung disease, if they have lung um, challenges, which sometimes uh, micro preemies have uh, lung challenges um, for their life just because of lung development, then that would potentially put them at an increased risk for severe disease. And so um, you have to kind of look at your individual situation of what risk factors, you know, you have individually or your kids have, and then um, those around you, kind of what your risk factors are when you're trying to, to weigh into what type of activities or settings you're going to be willing to to go engage in what type of activities you're Yeah, and I think it's important to to remind parents to talk to their pediatrician about their individual um, child's health issues. I, I know I've had several patients during the last few months where depending on the child and depending on their health history, the answer has been, you know, yes, I think if you wear a mask and the people around you are wearing a mask, that child is okay. And then I've had other children where the pediatrician has said, even to the extreme of, you know, going to a lab to get that annual blood work isn't essential right now. We can wait on that. Um, And really being very cautious based on health history. So Yes. Good reminder for that. Okay. Next question. We have a lot of questions and, and, and this is common. I've heard this a lot too. Indoor sports, outdoor sports. Um, the first specific question is our son is um, one out of four kids in a Taekwondo class and one parent refuses to wear a mask. She sits in the room with the other kids and also her son doesn't wear a mask. Is he safe in this environment? Sports certainly has a profound impact in, in children. Um, it has in my life. You mentioned that I, I played basketball. Um, fortunately, your grandparents and your entire family are wonderful, so they didn't care that I was out bouncing a ball outside of their house for hours upon hours. But, you know, we know that sports have a, a significant impact on um, children and families, um, you know, exercise is important and and we should be encouraging exercise, even if we have to remain physically distant. But when we're talking about sports, it really comes down to, and and we'll talk about this again, it's going to come down to where you live and what sport you're talking about. So there are certain sports that may have a higher risk, obviously, if you're, um, you know, how many players are there 
what's spacing, how often or for how long are they in contact? Is this an indoor versus an outdoor sport? Um, if it is an indoor, you know, how big is the facility? How well, um, you know, is it ventilated? That can impact um, the risk of an infection. So when we're talking about kind of mitigating this, this risk, because as we, we discussed before, for what we know now, children seem to get the infection less. And if they do get it, they get it with less severe consequences. Um, but we are learning more about it. So we have seen, you know, we have seen children get it and spread it even within, uh, you know, a sports team. Or recently there was a, a camp in, in Georgia um, where there was kind of spread. And so I think it depends upon, again, what is the sport? Um, and it goes back to like, what are the risks versus the, the benefits? So if you have a child that has those underlying conditions, you know, they're immunocompromised or they um, have a, a, a history of, of diabetes, then that might be a little bit of an, an increased risk and, and really need to be having discussions with the school um, or the league of like, what's the policies, you know, so we haven't talked a lot about this yet, but I'm going to say this a lot throughout, you know, hand-washing, hand-washing, hand-washing is really, really important. Um, maintaining that physical distance of at least six feet when you can. Uh, wearing a face cloth covering, you know, not when you're actually playing the sport um, per se, but maybe when you're like on the sidelines or when you arrive at practice or when you're leaving for practice. Um, and then, you know, really it's, it's going to take each and every one of us, if your child or you and your family are having symptoms and you feel sick, then they should not go to participate. That can be a little bit challenging because we talked earlier about how a lot of individuals don't have symptoms at all. So it can be hard or their symptoms might be so mild. But if, if you know that your child is, is sick, then certainly we need to to keep them from that sport. I know when I played, I always wanted to go no matter what, you know, I, I didn't, even if I had a sore throat, like it was going to be hard to keep me from practicing. But I think we have to really work together as a team and say, you know, you know, you're not feeling well, so we can't go to potentially risk others from, from getting, you know, whatever you may have, and then have that discussion uh, with your pediatrician if you're sick. So um, I think it's ultimately going to fall to the to the parents or the guardian to decide if they participate. But I think if places are taking um, action, it sounds like in the question you asked, most people were wearing masks and staying like physically distanced. I think if you engage in good hand washing, then you potentially could do that safely um, because you're not potentially in contact with with other individuals as much. Um, but Again, I mean, I think I'll probably use a lot of sports analogies, but, you know, we can draw up the play, but we have to all run it. So, you right. know, if, if people don't follow the, the guidelines, um, or follow, the the rules. follow the rules, then <laughs> it makes it a little bit more challenging um, because then, um, you know, there might be spread in, in that right. setting. And our next question was about gymnastics. Is it safe to go to gymnastics? And so I can see like this could go, is it safe to go to baseball? Is it safe to go to soccer? Am I hearing you right that what you're saying is the important things are frequent hand washing, the majority of people wearing masks absolutely when they can and the distancing and, and proper ventilation. Those are like the factors we should be considering when we're making our best decisions. 
Correct. Like, are they cleaning like frequently touched areas? So in gymnastics, you know, mats, um, mats, mats you know, right. Bars. So I'm not saying after every person participates, but you know, at least daily you should be doing a good cleaning and, and, you know, maybe not using the water fountain. Although if there is a water fountain, just making sure that it's, it's clean, but I would probably, you know, maybe discourage that practice and making sure that there's water bottles. I mean, that's for other viruses as well, you know, just to, try to minimize again, um, those, that interaction or that close interaction and, and maybe limiting, you know, like locker rooms or, um, lobbies that, yeah, like lobbies or places that people would typically congregate and maybe stay a little bit more separated. Um, particularly, you know, um, if you can avoid them altogether, they're really, really small places, but kind yeah. of taking those, um, prevention measures into account to help again, reduce the, the risk. And, and yeah, just to be clear, like athletes don't share food or drink. I mean, I would argue that's at any time, you know, but because we can share other viruses as well, not just SARS-CoV-2, there's the other viruses are still out there, you know, right. proteins, mono, um, you know, obviously when we get into the flu season, um, there's other viruses that are, that are out there. And so, um, yeah, I think those points that you hit on are going to be the, the big ones. And at the end of the day, it's going to come with, how comfortable that family feels and what their individual risks are, um, whether they feel like they can safely send their child to participate in that activity. Right. So moving on again, just um, with interactions and, and like you said, what their risks are with their family that often extends to extended families. Um, and so I know so many families, ours included, are so missing grandmas and grandpas and cousins and new additions and special events. And it's it's hard, but when you love your family, you want to keep them safe. So we had several questions about family interactions. The first one involved a new baby. It is, if my kids are wearing masks and wash hands, can they hold their baby cousin who is three months even after they start school without me feeling like a nervous wreck? I think we're going to have to definitely look at the individual kind of cases again. So certainly want to be wearing masks and washing the hands. If you're potentially feeling sick, you know, or if you're, you notice your child has felt sick, then it's probably not best to, to let them do that. And then maybe we just have them hold or interact for a short period of time. Again, it's, it's what risk, you know, you're, you're going to want to accept. Um, and certainly there's positive benefits and, and we've learned a lot, you know, we're participating, you know, we're practicing social distancing, we're participating, uh, you know, we're not physically in the same room. So we're using technology. So there's other ways to interact, to have those meaningful connections. And it is important to make sure that we're maintaining those relationships and those connections, because this is tough stuff that we're dealing with. And it causes a lot of stress on families and individuals. So we certainly want to make sure that we're staying connected. Um, but we have to kind of, again, if, if the, the baby has some underlying medical conditions, um, like maybe they have some heart disease, then perhaps it would not be the safest to engage. But if, if the baby's been doing well, um, I think, you know, you could consider um, maybe accepting that risk. But um, we haven't talked a lot about it yet. A lot of this comes into how much is the disease in your community. So if you're in an area where you're seeing a lot of disease, 
um, then there's certainly a, a higher risk of that community transmission. And so it is going to go on that case by case basis, but it is still recommended the best we can to, you know, stay safer at home to make sure you're maintaining that physical distance, um, not be congregating as what we're, I think, typically used to. Um, but, you know, I think if you reduce the amount of that interaction, um, you know, there's still going to be that risk. Um, but certainly wearing a mask, washing hands. Sometimes I recommend, you know, maybe a towel or something to kind of separate as well, then potentially a good you, could idea. Have, you could have that interaction, but there's still going to be risk. Um, I think you just have to, to, again, be very kind of truthful. You know, people are like, yeah. oh, I'm just fine. I'm fine. Um, you have to really make sure that you're being truthful with any symptoms that you might be having. Right. And another baby question, someone wrote very honestly, what risks are worth it? My family is dying to spend time with my nine-month-old while she's still a baby. We currently only do outdoor visits at six feet apart. In the Texas heat, these visits don't last very long. Um, any thoughts? You did a really good job explaining about babies and some suggestions for visiting with babies indoor, outdoor. Any thoughts on indoor, outdoor family gatherings? Certainly outdoor is, is favorable because there's more ventilation, there's more space. And, um, you know, we do kind of prefer outdoor, obviously, when you want to be safe, you don't want individuals getting overheated, particularly if they're in, in you know, it's hot in most areas this time of year in the summer, but particularly in, in some other parts of the United States, it's, it's hotter. So, um, you know, I think it's up to an individual person of what they feel the risks are, are worth it and what they're willing to, um, to, to accept. Um, because as I mentioned before, people can do everything that's right and, and still potentially contract the virus. I see this all the time. I mean, in, in the inpatient setting, when kids are admitted to the hospital, you know, more times than not, parents will say, you know, what could I have done to prevent this? What could I have done? And, and there are certain things, you know, obviously wearing a seatbelt in a car, making sure a child is properly restrained, you know, in a car or, you know, firearm injury prevention and, and, you know, preventing injuries like that or drowning prevention. There are certain things that we try to prevent, but accidents still happen. And when it comes to infections, you know, you can do everything right, wash your hands, follow all the steps and, and still, um, potentially contract the virus. So, um, you know, I think you have to look at your individual case and, and determine what you're willing to accept um, until really we have a, a vaccine, which we've been uh, mentioned a little bit, but really, you know, until we feel that we've been able to provide more uh, immunity protection in kind of the community to really prevent this disease from being, being transmitted, that's really when the, I think the risk is going to feel a lot safer for a lot of us. Um, yeah. But it does certainly impact, you know, how much disease you're seeing in your community. If you're seeing a lot of spikes up in disease and you're having a, a lot of community transmission, I think it's probably safer to, to stay at home and, and not engage in, in those type of, of activities right. until you see less spread. Let's talk about grandparents for a second. I have heard so many people say, I'm not sending my kids back to school. We're doing virtual because I want them to be able to spend time with their grandparents. Or 
I am sending my children back to school. And that was such a hard decision because I think it's right for their education, but we will not see their grandparents or we will not see their grandparents indoors until we see how this goes. What would you say to families? Because I, I know there are a lot struggling with that, mine included. Um, you know, my parents have some health history. My mother-in-law is um, recovering and thankfully in remission from cancer. What, what do you say to parents who are wondering about grandparent visits and especially grandparent visits and time spent indoors or outdoors after school has started? I, I wish there was just like an easy one sentence answer. It's, it, it is, these are tough decisions. I think it's going to go back to playing into, you know, what are those risk factors? How can, can everybody maintain their physical distancing and we can wear a mask, making sure we're all washing our hands. Um, you know, again, it depends upon that individual's, you know, underlying how they're doing in their, in their health status and, and what risks they may have. Um, balancing that with the mental health, you know, um, challenges that you might feel, you know, from not being able to see your, your loved ones. And so I think the safer way to do it is, you know, to be in that a space, potentially outdoors, if you could, could swing it. Um, and, you know, maintaining that physical distancing versus um, making sure that you're wearing a mask around them, certainly, and, and potentially masking, you know, making sure both people are masked. There are some people who can't wear masks because it might make it harder for them to breathe or they have an underlying condition. Um, and really good hand washing and, and cleaning of surfaces. I think that those are um, strategies that you can deploy. Everyone's situation is different. You know, many people rely upon grandparents to help provide care. Um, many many grandparents are raising children. Right. We see a, a significant amount of, of kinship care in, in our state of West Virginia. And so their grandparents are, are, are heavily involved. And, and so I think you, again, need to kind of take into account like what risk factors your family has and, and also being truthful, you know, who has, who have you been around, you know, who have you been interacting with? you know, kind of the blanket statement is certainly like the safest is to maintain that physical distance and potentially continue that distance apart until we have a more effective vaccine. Um, But, you know, if you want to accept some of that risk, you know, being thoughtful and and maybe doing a little bit of a shorter visit and then making sure that the area is really well cleaned, you know, before and after and ventilated and making sure people wash their hands. There's been newer reports out even in multi-generational households in areas where there's community spread, you know, maybe even wearing a mask at home. Typically, we've told people, you know, in, in your own home, you, you wouldn't necessarily need to wear a mask. But, you know, there is some discussion. Dr. Burks, one of the national um, leaders in coronavirus, you know, they've started to, to mention that in multi-generational households, you know, considering wearing masks. Um, to and keep so, grandparents safe. Yeah. Yeah. To try to keep um, grandparents or those with any health um you know, uh, underlying health conditions safe. So while we're on the topic of masks, we had a lot of mask questions. Um, one specific, which this is a good example of a practical scenario. This question was, um, let me find this here. This question was, if three people are in a meeting, one person's wearing a cloth mask, one person is wearing a surgical mask, 
and one person with active symptoms and a positive COVID test, which I don't know why they were even there, but is wearing a surgical mask and all are within three feet of each other for less than 30 minutes. Would we consider those two others without COVID exposed? When we're talking about um, close contacts, that, that's when we kind of talk about if you're in close contact with the case. Those individuals, even though they're wearing a mask, it might be a lower risk exposure, but a close contact, um, this is from the CDC, is an individual who's been within six feet of an infected person for at least 15 minutes. Um, and we kind of go from two days before the illness onset or you know, two days prior to when they may have tested positive because we're seeing a lot of what we call pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread or pre-symptomatic spread is like, you know, you were probably spreading the virus before you develop symptoms. And so, you know, we, when we're talking about if you're identified as a contact, that is part of the public health investigation. When someone tests positive, they're deemed a case and the local health department engages in case investigation to identify contacts and those contacts are identified um, and then recommended to quarantine and given um, education on what would, you know, what are possible symptoms and if they develop symptoms, they should get tested. And so depending upon, you know, where the setting was um, and, you know, um, again, were you outside, were you inside? But in that particular example, um, because of the, the time and since they were close to one another, even though they were all wearing masks, um, I would, would see individuals still considering that being a, a contact. Um, with the caveat, healthcare settings sometimes are considered a little bit different because we are dealing with a crisis. And so we are seeing there, there are things that we do kind of during normal times. And then there are things in crisis situations that we, you know, it's not ideal, but we accept that risk when we've talked a lot about risk and, and benefits today. Um, and so this is a decision that really should be made in discussion with the local health department. But the scenario that, that you gave me without knowing any more, I would probably deem that as a, as a contact and, and, and a, as an exposure. And there are low risk and higher risk exposures. Right. And so, um, again, I think if you're being super, super cautious, you know, I would recommend like quarantining, monitoring the symptoms. Um, but again, it, it, that's a discussion that has to take place with the, the local health department. Never have I learned more about local health departments or been thankful for them in the last few months. They're doing, they're doing important work. So what about children to and under who can't wear a mask? How safe are they to go to appointments, medical in nature? This parent bought their child a face shield She's, their daughter is two years old. Is that enough? Is it, or should she even bother with a face shield? I actually saw a picture of this. It was quite creative. I don't know if it's helpful, but it was kind of um, like a kid's sun hat that had a face shield in front. Is there any benefit to that? So this is a great question. I know that there's been a lot about, you know, masks wearing in, in children and in, in the AAP or the American Academy of Pediatrics, of which I, I'm fortunate to serve as the president of our West Virginia chapter here in West Virginia. Um, you know, it, we recommend anyone ab above to really wear that cloth face covering. I think 
younger than that, we worry about the potential risk of, of suffocation. And so that's why it's not recommended. There are creative kind of face shields. I would, you know, again, it depends. You just want to make sure that they're going to be able to have proper ventilation. Um, I think that, you know, focusing more on, you know, perhaps like making sure that you're cleaning your hands. So if you have like baby wipes or something, just because, you know, kids love to touch things. And so maybe being, spending your effort instead of potentially getting them to to wear the face shield. I mean, if they'll wear it, great. I, I would not recommend wearing the, the, the face cloth covering um, in less than two. Um, and so I haven't seen this area. It's not something that we have necessarily recommended. And we're, again, learning more and more about it. There's different types of masks that people have talked about. Um, just in the example you gave about, you know, surgical masks, there's like N95s or different cloth covering masks. We're learning more and more about what's more effective. You know, what I've mostly seen is something that's kind of covering your face, obviously, uh, more levels, more layers potentially could prevent further spread, but you want to be able to make sure that you can breathe through them. Okay. Um, making sure they have a good, uh, you know, they're covering both the nose and the, the mouth. I think one of the biggest things that I've seen is individuals kind of like pull the mask down. So they yeah. pull it below their nose or they pull it onto their chin. You know, help. it doesn't help, you know, it's it, a mask or a face cloth covering, you know, we're trying to co- cover those parts of your face, not like a chin strap, you know. You have a suggestion thing. for the type of mask that's best for children who are going back to school to wear any certain number of layers for the cloth masks? That was one of our questions is if a parent is buying masks on their back to school list, um, are there any certain cloth masks or certain number of layers that we should be looking for? I don't uh, have a recommendation of like particular layers. Um, You know, um, I think the biggest thing is we want to make sure that the size is right. So, you know, I would recommend more so getting a child size one. So maybe smaller than what would be a typical adult. And so finding um, the right size, I think, is probably more important. Um, And then making sure that they're able to to breathe. So, um, most, you know, homemade or or purchased cloth coverings, there's, um, on the CDC website, there's recommendations as to what you can do. You know, you can even make it with a bandana or a, um, uh, a t-shirt. Again, um, the, the more layers that you have, the, the, the more potential decrease in the transmission of, of spreading that and really wearing a mask for twofold to help prevent any of the spread and potentially protect us from getting exposure, but it really is one of those things that help others. And so I think when it comes to kids and masks, I think it's going to be really important to like practice with them. So this is not something that you're going to be able to do the night before you have to really kind of condition them. And it's been interesting just that I've observed whether I've been participating in a zoom call with children or when I was recently on the inpatient service, like my whole team walked in and like, um, the, the patient, um, like, just put her mask on. And I was like, good for you. Like I complimented on her. I was like, good job. And like, then like, you know, she had had a mask and we put the mask on the stuffed animal. So it kind of normalizes that. And if you're explaining and it gives children a sense, this is a scary time for all of us, particularly children. And so having opportunities that children can feel like they're part of the solution. So, and giving them control over certain things. So maybe it's, you know, picking the soap that they wash their hands or picking the song that they sing when they're, they're washing their hands for 20 seconds. Um, 
or when it comes to cloth face coverings, you know, letting them pick out the, the pattern that they might be wearing and then, you know, practicing with them, putting it on a stuffed animal and kind of normalizing that behavior and then parents modeling that behavior. Right. Um, I think that that can be really, really helpful. Um, and, you know, I think it, it can be tough because I think, um, you know, people when they typically see someone wearing a mask or a cloth face covering, you know, they might get stereotyped as they're being sick or something like that. So I think as more people wear face cloth coverings and it becomes more normal and, and it's explained that this is what we're doing right now um, to, to help us, um, you know, in this, when we're talking about the virus, um, you know, um, that is going to think go a long way in getting individuals. So uh, the selection of the mask is important, but I think it's more so going to be the behavioral components of right. making sure children two, feel comfortable. I've seen some nice social stories too, that, that we can link to, you know, have kids watch videos or look at a book or, you know, that tells a story of a character or a child who's making smart and kind choices with mask wearing. And I think for, especially for some children who may have learning challenges or challenges with social interactions, which obviously your mouth is a huge part of your social interactions, um, that may be helpful. And we can, we can link that. I know I, I did a little bit of, um, work in outpatient, um, during the virus and I work so much with babies and I realized how much of my facial expressions are comforting to them or, you know, motivating to them. If I was trying to get them to do something and I was like, I really have to be expressive with my eyes <laughs> because I've lost, um, my mouth and the ability to do that behind a mask, but we, you know, we've all adjusted. Our next question is, and, and this is a good one too. If you wash is washing your clothes as soon as you come home important and showering in, in this family's home, they make everybody strip down in the garage and head straight to the shower when they come home. Is that something you would suggest? I think we want to be practicing good hygiene. Again, sometimes there's not, you know, I, I'm not sure that this particular scenario has been been uh, studied. I think it depends upon, you know, where you've been and what typically could be. I mean, I know that there were times, you know, in my household after I had been playing sports all day, you know, I wasn't going anywhere without taking off my dirty, muddy, you know, uh, softball uniform. So I think, um, you know, um, we, we believe that this virus is, is pretty typically killed. It's a non-enveloped virus. So there are, CDC has recommendations as to what are our products that can effectively kind of um, when we're talking about cleaning and disinfecting. And so we think that normal laundering uh, for what we have proven thus far, you know, normal laundering would, would work. Um, it's important to also wash the face mask because I've, I've seen that too. Yeah. We talked about the cloth face covering. I yeah, think that's, I a think big that's point. important to have like a dirty bin and a clean bin. So when you're leaving the house, you're pulling a clean mask, not the dirty one that you left in your car. Correct. Yeah. So I think good hygiene is critical. And if you have been out and about, then perhaps, you know, taking a shower just to, and removing your clothes, I think that would be, you know, helpful if you went for, you know, a one minute walk around your house and you come back in, do you maybe need to do that? Oh, I don't know. If right. you necessarily need to go to that extreme. So this was a um, practice with, with two parents in our household, my husband and I do home health care. This is, we've been doing this for years, um, just to decrease the spread of any infection on our clothes after we've been at work. And I'm sure there's, I, I, 
I probably err on the side of caution, but it's probably never a bad idea if you've been around a lot of people to change before you're sitting on your furniture and hugging your kids. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, I think I've, I've done some of those things as well too, you know, before COVID, you know, when I was on service during um, RSV season or flu season, even though I always get my flu shot, my husband gets his flu shot, you know, just taking those extra steps um, to just make sure that you're practicing good hygiene, I think is important. Um, And so, yeah, I think some of the, it goes, you have have water, It it can't hurt. Right. I think that's the case. I mean, everyone, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit when we talk about, you know, if we're, I think we're going to talk about schools. Yes. I think every, every household is different and everyone has different needs. Not all the households are the same. Um, and so, you know, we, we've seen before the pandemic, you know, just the impact that having like access to a washer and dryer can, can have on a family. And there's schools that kind of open up to allow that type of activity to, to happen. And so I think, you know, you know, it's, I don't think it's going to necessarily hurt anything if you are practicing um, that, um, but it, it's not something that's been particularly studied to that level as, as other things have been to make a, a strict recommendation. I think some of it comes with, with, with common sense. Okay. General wellness question. And I love this one. Should I be giving children or taking myself anything to boost immunity? So I think, you know, there's a lot of information out there. I, I highly recommend people go to credible sources. There's not been anything found to, to necessarily be recommended. I think trying to do those things that keep us in good health at all times, um, you know, practices that we would, you know, try to employ engaging in physical activity, eating a well-balanced diet. Um, you know, if you take a multivitamin, I think that's fine. You know, uh, sometimes people will take you know, extra vitamin C, there's no specific kind of recommendation to kind of boost immunity. Uh, believe me, I have seen a ton of stuff out there of people trying to sell items, the but I think elderberry, does elderberry work just outside of COVID just general? That's, that's always a discussion <laughs> in our family. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think there's different properties that have like vitamin C and we know like antioxidants, you know, certainly I, I would just encourage individuals to kind of eat a well-balanced uh, diet. And, and certainly everyone, again, has different situations. If you're found to have a deficiency in some type of vitamin, then it's likely going to be recommended that you take to take more of that. But I think, you know, trying to do those practices that we do all the time, that general we really care for yourself, good yeah, general care, lots of hydration, yeah. balanced right. diet, manage your stress. Right. And I hope moving forward past the pandemic, you know, people will institute some of these. I can't tell you how many people are like, I was washing my hands wrong the whole time. It's like, you know, these should really be practices that we're doing all the time, whether we're in a pandemic or not. Vitamin or magic supplement specific to coronavirus that we know about right now. Correct. Extra C. Okay. So this was an interesting question that came in from a colleague of mine who's an OT. And and she said, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm just curious, Dr. Lisa's opinion. During this time of the pandemic, when things are so stressful, can it be normal for older children to have a regression of behaviors to younger behaviors? We can see in stressful situations, um, children or teens regress in their development. Um, certainly, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of all the work that um, you and Lacey do um, through Milestones and Miracles and, and you know, um, all the, the work that you do with development. 
Um, I think that um, we can see that. So maybe you had a child who was potty trained and then you might see them regress and, and not be in that, uh, you know, they might have episodes where they um, have some incontinence um, or certainly um, as we progress, you might see older children maybe become a little bit more clingy or also you could see them just become more isolated um, and kind of not be as interactive. Maybe they were a more outgoing um, person and then you know you've seen over time them not be as interactive as much um so it is important to be checking in on you know really people of all ages but particularly children and teens to to ask how they're doing keeping an eye on you know their behavior um you know that wouldn't be usual so maybe they're more irritable or they might be having more episodes of rage or they have more conflicts than they typically would i think it can be hard in the teenage years because i mean you have teenage daughters so I will let you speak to that more than than I could but I think some of that you know some of it might be normal teenage um, or adolescent behavior but I think you do need to keep a close eye on that you know because we've seen so much increased stress and anxiety around uh, the the pandemic and so um, you certainly can see a, a regression in some of those developmental milestones um, from any stressful situation. And certainly we're seeing that with the pandemic as being a, a stressful situation. I would also just add here that, you know, parents really model the way or the adults, you know, we talk about one caring adult in, in, in someone's life. And so I think it's important um, to have those guardians, those parents, the adults kind of set the the tone. So by maintaining a positive attitude, like we're going to get through this together. I know there's a lot of changes. I know it's frustrating. Um, you know, we can, if, if we stay consistent with that messaging that, you know, better days are ahead, um, you know, we're all in this together. We're going to keep talking about it and maintaining those open lines of communication, I think really go a long way in trying to make sure that we're checking in on everyone's physical and mental health as well. Right. And we're going to go back to mental health here in a minute, but first let's just, let's go after the big one, which is schools. Um, I'm sure you've gotten so many questions. I know uh, she's been my own personal coronavirus czar <laughs> to ask questions about schools. Um, so I'm just going to go through the questions we did receive about schools. One listener asked, at what point should we as parents remove our children from school? And and they specifically commented they weren't sure that they trusted um, the color-coded system that is proposed in our state, which every state's going to be different. But what sort of metrics or should we what what should we be paying attention to when deciding whether to keep our children physically in school? This is certainly um, a very uh, hot uh, topic, as it should be. You know, this is important decisions. Schools are fundamental to child, teenage development, and and overall well being. And there's so much that comes from school more than just the academic. You know, there's social interaction. Um, and there's also for a lot of individuals, you know, um, that's where it's kind of been our safety net. So whether that's food security or having that caring adult be there, um, for the child. So certainly this is really, really tough decisions and, and important ones. And, and so the American Academy of Pediatrics, we did put guidance out and, and really, you know, the, 
the way that we advocate and I have advocated for this is that, you know, when we're talking about policy considerations or what to do, really the goal should be to have students physically present in school. Virtual learning is great, but it's, it is not the same as, as being physically present in school. With that being said, we have to have policies that are flexible, that can respond to new information as we've talked about from the beginning. This is a new virus. We're learning more and more about it. That, that's a good thing. We need to keep learning about it. Um, and we have to be willing as a school, as a community, as an individual to be willing to, to adapt. And so when we're talking about whether or not you should send your child back to school, it's again going to be a personal decision. You have to look at multiple factors, talk to the school, get information of what type of um, infection control strategies are they going to um, deploy. Also, um, what is your own personal risk factors? You know, do you, does your child or someone in your family have any of those higher risk conditions that you maybe feel uneasy about potentially sending um, them into an area where they're going to be around more individuals? Also, I think you have to look at what at home are you able to, to manage um, and, and care. You know, some people come from single families, and so it's really challenging for them to be able to, to provide care um, in addition to maintaining their livelihood of, of, of working. Um, I'm not going to get into the debate. I mean, I think that certainly this pandemic has, has highlighted um, many of the um, inequities that we have in our in our communities. And so, um, you know, certainly there needs to be a multifactorial kind of approach moving forward when we're talking about addressing some of these um, inequities. Um, and and it, it certainly is, is hard because we're magnifying all these inequities that we have in our society. Um, and, and these are really tough decisions that have to be to be made. So I think when you're looking at making that decision, you need to see how much in your community is, is spread happening. And that's something that, um, you know, the state uh, board of education, um, as well as the local health departments are going to be taking into account, you know, what is that community spread? Um, where is it spreading in a community? How many new cases are we seeing? I think that certainly plays into the decision as well. And, and the alerting system is, is designed for that to kind of help identify, hey, we're seeing a, an, an uptick in cases. Do we need to be making um, changes to our mitigation strategies to try to reduce the, the spread? Right. So, so I certainly think it's, it's a tough decision. I will say that whatever decision you make for your family it's going to be the right decision that you make for your family. Um, everyone is going to have different situations. Not everyone's home life is the same. Some people may be able to do virtual learning um, and, and they're able to make that work. There's a lot of other social benefits that come with school that, you know, maybe you feel in your family it's, it's worth that. Um, and, and there's others that, that they need that, that school to kind of rely upon um, the multiple things that we talked about, whether it's food um, or, you know, access to broadband or access to electronic devices. I think the state or is looking at... Or access to um, special education services and therapies. You know, mm -hmm. that's something that our community, I know, struggles with. And what, what is the reality for children who don't have another resource to access 
therapies. It's, it's hard. It's, you know, I, I empathize with all of these questions and a lot of them as a parent I've had myself, I struggled till the very last minute till I had to make a decision and neither decision felt right to me and, and still doesn't. Um, and so I, I get it. I, I know why people are asking these questions specifically. Someone said, what about go? Um, if you had an underlying condition, specifically thyroid disorder or asthma, would you recommend virtual school over in-person school for those two diagnoses? Again, I'm sure they're going to have to talk to their pediatrician about their specific level of impact of both of those conditions, but are asthma and thyroid conditions something that you would worry about with in-person school? Again, I think that, as you mentioned, this is something that you need to discuss with your uh, pediatrician or your, your healthcare provider, um, you know, moderate to severe asthma might place you at an increased risk for severe illness from COVID. I'm not saying that you wouldn't potentially get COVID. We're talking a lot of times when I talk about this risk, we're talking about, you know, what's your risk to get severe disease from COVID. And so if you have more severe, um, asthma and then the, the thyroid one is a, a tough one. It depends what type of thyroid disorder it is. Um, if it's from an immunocompromised state, so say you're also on steroids or something that would probably place you at a little bit of a higher risk. Um, so again, I think it's really important to have this discussion with, with your healthcare professional so that they can give you some more of that individualized, uh, guidance. Makes sense. What about if a parent has decided to send their child back to virtual school? Someone is asking, if I'm sending my child to virtual school, is it safe for them to play outside with neighborhood friends who are going back to school in person? I will be honest. I struggle with this question. I mean, I think you have to, again, look at why are you not sending your child to school? If you're not sending your child to school because you feel the risk of them um, contracting the illness, whether it's for them, the potential to get severe disease, or there's someone in the household that they could potentially get severe disease, then I think your strategy should really be limiting interactions across the board. So you shouldn't be going out to eat. Um, You shouldn't be going, you know, you should be, obviously we have essential things that need to, to happen. And I certainly think going to your pediatrician and making sure your update on your vaccines and getting your checkups are, are essential. Um, but, you know, maybe there's other things that if you're really trying to, to minimize that risk of contracting the virus, um, because if you're playing with children, um, you, you know, whether they went to school or not, you're potentially increasing that, that risk of transmission. And so um, when you're around somebody else that you haven't been around with, you know, you're potentially being exposed to whatever they were exposed to and if they contracted the virus. So um, I wish that was an easy yes, no yeah, question. Yeah, makes sense though. But, no, that information is helpful. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is throwing it back. I mean, my mom, like if I didn't go to school, like I wasn't going out to play. I mean, that was obviously if I was feeling sick. I think this is a little bit of a different situation because we're talking right. about someone who's, you know, choosing a different learning option. But, you know, if, if Yes, there might be more interaction with people in the school, but you're still going to be having that risk when you're interacting with other individuals that you might not interact with with as much, especially if you're going to be doing so in, in a close proximity. Right, right. 
I can't wait till a day that until we have more absolutes, but until then, you know, figuring out the risk and, and the value is, is just really important. Okay. Last few questions, um, specifically about pediatrics. Do we, well, and adults, do we know much about the long-term effects of COVID on children or adults? What do we know about that at this point? We are still learning more and more about this. Um, you know, as we said at the onset, this disease was first identified in late 2019. So we've really learned a great deal about the, the disease and the virus since that time, but we're learning more and we will continue to learn more. And when we're talking about long-term consequences, you know, um, it's going to take time to determine if individuals have any um, heart impact. There was a, a study out of Germany that looked at individuals that had um, some cardiovascular or heart disease. Um, again, it's on an individual basis. And then you can speak to this more as a, as a physical therapist, but if you get that severe illness, you know, physical deconditioning that comes along with, with an illness, it can take time to recover from that. And so um, that's going to be different for, for each person, but certainly the, the physical deconditioning that can come along with a, a severe illness, people um, might bounce back at, at different times. And so we're still learning. I think the area of concern that we certainly want to make sure that we're looking at is what are the long-term developmental and um, mental health ramifications, you know, right. so stress, depression, um, you know, it, you know, we've seen in other disease states, you know, kind of some trauma or PTSD, you know, will there be that anxiety when it, when it comes to, to this? I've already heard, you know, from children of, of all ages, you know, parents saying that of, of children saying, you know, things aren't normal, they're never going to get back to be the same. Um, and so there's certainly a lot of stress, um, anxiety, depression that we're seeing and, and those long-term um, impact. We're, we're going to talk about mental health in a second, but I just wondered, I've read and, and I've known a few people who have had COVID that adults that then have trouble with uh, mostly things that seem to hit the vascular system, blood pressure regulation, maybe pressure in the, in the eye with some vision diagnoses, um, things like that. Are we seeing, or do you know, have we seen any sort of effect on the vascular system of children who have had it long, like after they've regained health? We're still learning. And I think there's still a lot of those studies that are going to, it's going to take time to really see if there's an association. We have to be careful. And I didn't talk about this. We have to be careful when we're talking about associations, um, you know, correlation does not equal causation. So just because we might see a correlation, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was the cause. This can be, this is super tricky. And when we talk about interpreting stuff, you know, really when you look at these studies, I think in this day and age, we read the headline, I'm a hashtag tweetatrician, so I'm engaged on Twitter. Um, and, and, and people, you know, will read headlines. But then when you actually look at the study and get into the nuances of it and you start to break it down, there's a lot more in the study than just maybe what a brief four-minute read would, would, would yield. And so I think we have to learn a lot more and we're going to need to be looking at that and then see what would this have happened anyway, whether they got COVID or not? And that's where you get into those studies of, of that age and, and determining if, is this truly related to, to COVID? There certainly have been vascular events. So we've seen individuals get blood clots. 
um, associated with, with the virus. Um, and again, we continue to learn more. And I think that's one of the things that we have kind of learned more about it over time is the um, blood clotting and the, or the vasculature, like you talked about some of the consequences there. And so I think a little bit for that question, time is, is going to tell, um, mm-hmm. depending upon what, what really are the, the long-term um, consequences. And it also depends upon what you had when you initially had that, that disease. Good point. Okay, so let's circle back to mental health. Um, we know the social-emotional toll of this virus has been significant for all of us. Children are sadly not excluded from that. When you talk to parents, how are you advising them when they're worried about this aspect of the virus and how it affects their kids? How can we best monitor our children? How, how can we best balance that physical health and safety with mental health? Um, I haven't talked to a parent since March who hasn't, to some level or degree, been worried about their kid's emotional state. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this and what can we do to protect our kids? I think it's very important that we have this discussion about mental health. Um, and for all of us, um, you know, this has been, there's been stress, fear, I think a lot of uncertainty. I mean, I've heard so much, like, just make a decision. Like, we just want to know, like, you know, um, and, and unfortunately, a lot of decisions are very complicated and, and there's a lot of different factors to consider, but all of that leads to, to stress. It really can wear anyone down. Um, certainly teens, I think I really, really worry about that adolescent, but really children of, of all ages. I, I think it's important that we are um, making sure that we are having open lines of communication and, and checking in with our children or our teen. Um, and, and when we're talking to them, there's an important, you know, there's a lot of news coverage, media. We talked about that social media um, you know, really, we probably should be filtering a little bit of the information that that children get, particularly based upon their age. So reassuring children, um, you know, say, you know, people are learning as much as they can about this virus as quickly as we can to try to keep everyone safe. We talked earlier about giving kids control. Um, so what they can do, um, you know, how they can wash their hands often and, and how wearing a face cloth covering, those are ways that could potentially help them be part of the solution. And then really watching um, and monitoring what their media consumption is. And so, you know, there are frightening images that can be on TV, you know, um, showing hospitals. And and I've seen different images of, you know, the more critically ill intubated people that that look really sick. And so, um, you know, younger kids probably should be kept away from that. And older kids, it's important to to talk about with them what they're seeing if, if they have that. And then watching for those signs of anxiety or depression. And so children, they might not be able to verbalize that. So they might not be able to tell you like mommy or daddy, like I'm feeling nervous. Um, But you might pick up on it in some of those developmental regressions that we talked about earlier. Or maybe they get more cranky or they're more clingy or they can't sleep as well or they just seem really distracted. Um, And that can, can really then say, hey, this is not normal behavior. Maybe I need to talk to my pediatrician. And then the pediatrician can screen for depression and anxiety and determine if they might need 
extra help, you know, whether that's talking to a therapist or seeing a psychiatrist. Um, but I think children and teens really like routine. So the more that we can stick to a routine and then really being positive role models, like we talked about before, um, modeling good behavior, keeping a positive tone, I think is going to be really important. But um, yeah, you know, I know in the beginning of the pandemic, my kids, obviously, as we've moved into a little bit of a routine, their anxiety levels have leveled off. But in the beginning, it was such a shock to their system because from our end, there was, you know, very little warning from their little worlds. They went to school and then they didn't and everything stopped. And as busy teenagers, that was a shock to the system. And a few things that we did that helped um, were we have a giant chalkboard in our kitchen and I wrote things like, have you gone on a walk today? Had enough water? Did something artistic? Um, you know, just read a book, talk to a friend over the phone or FaceTime. That's one thing, you know, teenagers do so much texting and messaging through social media, but have you to the, the best way we can do now through a screen, which I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of screens, but have you seen your friend's face so that you can see their emotions and expressions and they can see yours, you know, just doing our best to, like you said, establish a routine, but also make sure that they're building in breaks for things that I call fill your cup. Have you done things to fill your cup today? Because if you're not feeling good, there's a reason and you need to figure out how to do that. Um, and it was hard. It's still hard. You know, their anxiety about, well, what if we get switched to all virtual and we've had to reassure them, well, then that will be a decision that's made for safety and we will make the best of it. We will make you a school area. We will make sure that you're able to work on things with neighbors that we know have limited um, exposure as well so that you will be with someone other than the four of us in this house and you can work on assignments together, you know, we'll set you up a school space. Well, you know, just whatever to assure them that we'll take the punches as they come and we'll make sure the best we can that you're safe and we'll, we'll take it on as an adventure as we have to. It's hard. It's hard as a parent. And I, I think that the information that you shared here today, we're not going to know exactly what to do. There's always going to be a risk, but when we, I know you've helped me personally, and I'm thankful that you've helped our listeners. Um, hopefully when you try to take the high emotions, which there are many and, and stick to the facts about what we know, keep us safe physically and mentally, it's easier to make the decisions, even though they're still hard. Right. They certainly are hard. And, and I would be remiss. And I do, if I could just add this in when we're talking about mental health is the whole concept of suicide. I know that a lot of times it's a tough thing to talk about. Um, I don't think it potentially should be. Maybe we as a society have made it. But I, I think, you know, not teens, not everyone will say they're considering suicide. And so, you know, I do think that we just need to, um, you know, be cognizant of that. And if, if, if it does get to the level where you feel like your teen or your, your child is getting to that point, um, that is something that needs to be taken very seriously. You need to make sure that you're, you're reaching out to your healthcare professional. You know, there are the national suicide prevention lifeline. You can text, um, uh, to the, to the crisis, um, talk line. 
And then making sure that you keep your home safe, you know, removing firearms, um, removing weapons, um, you know, making sure that medicines are secured. As an inpatient hospitalist, you know, meaning I take care of kids when they're admitted to the hospital. I mean, we do see children who and teens who attempt suicide. And I think that it's it's really important that we we talk about it and 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 I've heard it many a times, like people are like, oh, I didn't see it coming. And I don't say this to scare people because I think we're all just trying to do the best that we can. It's more so just being prepared and making sure that we talk about it um, and yeah. know that there's resources available to help in that situation. Um, and so that's an important, I, I think, think, distinction. Too, assuring tweens and teens that you know, they have a very, it's well-documented, it's well-shared in the research that social media gives them the portrayal that everyone else is happy and everyone else is pretty and everyone else is popular and everyone else is athletic. And that's not the case. We're just not all gifted in all areas and we're not all happy every day. And so I think it's very important for parents to share the realities of, this is really hard for me too. I miss my friends. I feel really sad today. And it's okay to feel those feelings. And this is what I'm going to do to make sure that I'm safe and that I'm okay. Great point. Great and, point. And give, so allow them to feel their feelings, but also help them identify tools and activities and routines to monitor their own mental health and to improve their state of mind or their general sense of well-being to the best of their abilities and to know when it's out of their control to do so and when they need more help. Um, because I know we have that conversation here a lot. You don't have to be okay all the time. <laughs> it's not normal to be okay all the time, but we have to know what to do when we're not okay. Yeah, I think um, the the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics right now, Dr. Sally Goiza, um, she's been a, a she's a great mentor to me personally. I've worked with her nationally, and 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 she kind of sent out an email. You know, it's okay to not be okay. We've talked a lot about coronavirus. There's a lot of other things going on in our culture and our society right now that that leads to a lot of uncertainty um, when we talk about social injustice and, and racial injustice. And, and there's a lot of stuff on the media. So I think the points you made are, are really spot on. It's it's okay to not be okay. It's just yeah. we need to make sure that we are providing the resources of support and knowing that there are resources available at a state level, at a national level, at a local level to help individuals cope um, through this together. We right. know that teens are impulsive. Um, and so kids are curious, teens are impulsive. And so if they're feeling really sad, they might feel like there's no way out. And then they, they do something impulsively. Um, and, and then they kind of regret that. And so if we can prevent that from happening, I think that's an important right. thing that we all consider as well. Important, super important. Okay, so Dr. Lisa, at the end of every podcast, Lacey and I like to tell guests that the mic is theirs. You can say whatever you want. It can be funny. It can be serious. It can be educational. What do you want our listeners to know? It can be about coronavirus. It can be about something not coronavirus. It's yours. What do you want to say? Well, I think I've obviously taken up a big mic or part of the mic. I think this has been an important discussion. Thank you again so much, Um to Nicole, to Lacey for, you know, doing this podcast, bringing into light and um, for everyone that's listening, I guess what I would say is, is that, you know, um, these are tough times, but 
as an optimist, I think that we're going to get through it together. Um, since this is the More Than Child's Play podcast, um, one of my favorite quotes, um, I think it was Dean Smith, I always had Pat Summit say it in my basketball career, um, was, you know, play hard, play smart, and play together. And I think, I you know, that. yeah, I don't know if it's so much, you know, I mean, I think the play hard is like, these are hard times, you know, just, you know, going through day to day with all the changes, what we're learning, what we're seeing, it's hard times. But I think if we um, approach it in a smart way, using evidence-based um, recommendations, taking into account recommendations from trusted sources, whether that's the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, um, it's good to ask questions. But we should be relying on science to help drive our decisions and our 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 actions. And then we need to be playing together. This is tough. We're asking people or public health is asking individuals to do things that maybe we haven't in the past. But if we do it together, you know, help one another, washing hands, um, making sure that that we're wearing a face cloth covering, you know, abiding by these these principles. And then um, when a a vaccine that's going to be safe and effective is available, you know, getting that and making sure that you're staying up to date on your other vaccines as well. because they're incredibly important and we want to be able to prevent the diseases that we can prevent. I think that that's going to be really important that we're remembering that we're in this together. So I guess I would say, you know, play hard, play smart, play together. Um, as you guys coined so well, play builds brain. So if yes. we all, if we're all in this together, I think that um, we're going to get through it. And um, um, I'll just end with, uh, I'm obviously a big Mountaineer fan, so let's go Mountaineers. Mm, I love that. So um, listeners, Lisa is super active in social media. Any resources that she discussed here today, I will link for you in the show notes um, that is with our podcast. I'll also put her social media accounts. Um, she is great at sharing wonderful evidence-based positive resources for children and families. So you should absolutely go follow her. Um, As a reminder, you can always get more information on the importance of keeping children healthy, happy, and smart through play um, through our website, milestonesandmiracles.com. We also have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and the podcast as well. One, two, three, just play with me is always sold on our website and um, Amazon and select retailers regionally and um, makes a great gift for young families, for professionals who really believe in play as the best way to keep those kids healthy and happy and safe. Um, Lisa, I am so blessed that you spent this time with us. You are such a cherished friend, such a gift to my family, such a gift to our state. We are so lucky to have you right now. Um, I am so excited to share this with my friends, with my colleagues. I think this conversation, um, even that was lengthy, is really, really important um, to keep people pointing in the direction we need to go to work together to tackle this. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, and hopefully um, I can come back in the future and we'll, we'll be able to continue the discussion. But keep up the great work. Again, I'm, I'm a huge fan, and I appreciate everything that um, you do, um, Lacey, and the whole team um, just do for our community. So thank you. It's really been a, an honor. Great. Thanks, everybody. That's all for now. See you next time.